Thank you, Tony. If you have your Bibles tonight, you'd like to turn to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis 2, we'll pick up in verse 4 here in just a few minutes. So the great work of creation is over. On the sixth day, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. This was the pinnacle of creation, right? Human beings made in the image of God after his likeness as a dominion exercising son in a covenant relationship with him to rule over the earth as his regents here. And on the seventh day, God finished all the work that he had done and rested. And because he rested, he blessed the seventh day and made it holy. This was the goal of creation for all mankind to enjoy the presence of God, our creator, in joy and freedom, in rest. That brings us to 2-4. In um, ancient Hebrew literature, such as what was written at this time, like this, often the custom was to take up a topic and develop it from a particular perspective and then stop and uh, take up that same theme again, but from another point of view completely. That's what we're about to see as we make our way through the rest of chapter 2. The first account of creation from 1-1 to 2-3 gave a global perspective on creation. The second account, which is really 2-4 to 3-24, we won't go that far tonight, zeroes in exclusively on the creation of man. The first account focuses on the universe while the second focuses on humanity. Both accounts reach a climax. The climax of the first account was the creation of mankind. The climax of the second account is marriage. Man and woman who were made in the image of God, becoming one flesh, naked and unashamed, in a garden paradise and the presence of God for the purpose of fulfilling God's design for creation. One of the most important things to remember, though, as we study Genesis, is the presence of Jesus Christ in this text, in every text. The way God creates and what God creates continually proclaim Jesus Christ to us for our eternal salvation. His word gives life to the dust so that his word may become one flesh with the dust to fulfill the purpose of God. Let me pray for us one more time. Father, open your word to us tonight by your spirit. Show your son, Jesus Christ, to us. Help everyone understand. Father, help me be clear. Help me think. Help me deliver this message. Father, overshadow me in every way and everyone who listens that we might believe on your son. I ask this in his name, the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Chapter 2, verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. This verse establishes a pattern that we'll continue to see all throughout Genesis. This is called a toldot. All right. These are the toldots, the accounts of the heavens and the earth. We'll see this in 5.1, etc. That word is how Genesis is structured. It marks off the sections of Genesis very nicely for us. In other words, 2.4 is the beginning of a new section. After this cosmic view of all creation in Genesis 1 and its emphasis on God is the one who creates out of nothing, Genesis 2 will take a closer look at how God prepared a place. That language should sound familiar prepared a place for Adam and Eve to live. They're 
creation and the role he gives to them. It's all here. The text moves from God and his majesty as a sovereign creator to a personal God who cares for and interacts with his creation. Look at 5 through 7. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. This is how God did, so to speak, chapter 1, verse 26. It's explaining to us in more detail. It's letting us see how he did what he said it, what it said he did in 126. Before there was any development of open country and the land, before the seeds God created had fully grown, God had also, we find here, created a mist as the means by which the produce of the earth could be watered before the creation of rain and before the creation of mankind to work it. Then, the Lord created man. He formed him of dust from the ground. The Adam, man, is made from the Adama, the ground. He comes from and is therefore perfectly suited to keep the ground. And then God did something he had not done with any other creature he had made. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. This is the same thing that happened back in 1, 1 and 2. When God said, let there be light, and there was light. It's the same type of thing. There's a pattern in Genesis. God's word, the breath of his mouth, creates what did not previously exist. First, it was the light and the universe. Now, it's humanity itself. That needs to, as 1-1 did when Paul picks it up in 2 Corinthians, this needs to be shaping our understanding, beloved, of our salvation. Salvation is not God responding to our creation of ourselves as his children. It is God creating in us what did not previously exist in us by the word, the breath of his mouth, whom we come to find is a person, Jesus Christ, who is proclaimed to us in the gospel. God creates, it's what the text is showing us, right out of the gate, the first book of the Bible. God creates and saves in the exact same way, his creating word. He creates the universe, he creates faith, where prior to his word, neither previously existed. So we didn't create ourselves and we don't save ourselves. One naturally flows from the other. We're meant to see it that way. God was face-to-face with humanity at our creation. You you see that. That's the source of human life, being face-to-face with God. This is how man became a living creature. Dust doesn't give itself physical life or spiritual life. Both are the gift of God. Look at verses 8 through 9. We'll build towards the climax here. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Notice the care that God is taking to provide for the man that he made. God planted a garden in Eden, in the east. We don't have time tonight, but the the east is, 
is a, is a, there's a biblical theology of east in the Bible. It starts here. But the implication here from this verse and verse 5 is that the garden was unique in the world. You see that. Everything else was still in its beginning form. The garden was planted by God in Eden as a start to the rest of the creation coming into its own. It was a template. It was a pattern. The goal will be for the Garden of Eden to spread through the work of Adam and Eve all over the earth to cover it completely. God had already made Eden, whatever that region was, and after creating man, he planted a garden in that place called Eden. And he made every kind of tree that was pleasant to look at and produced food grow in that garden. The rest of the world isn't like Eden yet. It's different. We find that out in the beginning of the text. And he put the man whom he had formed there. God personally took Adam and placed him there in this paradise. Adam didn't find it. He didn't discover it. God made him and put him there. We started out in paradise. And with no description or fanfare, it's very interesting, we're told that two of these trees in the midst of the garden were set apart. There was something unique, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So God puts man in a place where Everything that is pleasant to the eyes and good for food, everything that he needs already exists. God provided for the visual satisfaction for the soul of mankind by trees that were pleasant to look at and everything that man needed to survive, to eat. It's already there. It already exists. All right. Look at 10 through 14. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. It really would probably, just real quick, it would probably be pretty fruitless to try and figure out exactly where the Garden of Eden was. You can, Cush is Ethiopia. We know where the Tigris and the Euphrates are. We have a general sense of where it was, but... When the flood comes, whatever this original world was, it's not like that anymore. So it would be very hard to figure out exactly where this is. But there's no expansion of it in the text of Genesis itself. But we come to find from the rest of Scripture the significance of this river that flowed out of Eden to water the garden. It became four rivers, as the text says. So all of life, you see that, is, is, was meant to come out of Eden and spread. Not only is water an important source of physical life, we know that. But when water flows from the place of God's presence, it's a picture or becomes one later in Scripture of God's blessing. Where God's presence is, God's blessing is. We see this in Psalm 46, Ezekiel 47, at the end of all things in Revelation 22. In John 7, rivers of living water flow from the Holy Spirit and the one who believes. The river here reveals the presence and the blessing of God in this beautiful paradise, this completely unique place verse 15 the lord god took the man and put him in the garden of eden to work it and keep it and the lord god commanded the man saying you may surely eat of every tree of the garden but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die so work again work in and of itself was not part of the curse was it in fact it was something provided for man by God as a part of being in paradise. 
He's placed in this garden for the purpose of working it and keeping it. Work is then a part of man's original calling for what it's worth. Then all work is sacred in some way and part of God's original intention for mankind. So you aren't doing something less holy by working in a mine or working in an office or a restaurant. The Hebrew words for work here means serve and keep. Two words are used or guard. So work was created not just to benefit us personally. It comes with certain responsibilities for the sake of others. Vocation is God-given. It's divine. All work has a spiritual dimension to it by virtue of being work. It's part of uh, exercising dominion as God's image and image and likeness in the world. Literally, whether you're a preacher or a plumber, right? It, it wouldn't make any difference. And dominion wasn't only given through work, but through Adam's task of naming the animals in this text, which comes down in verses 19 through 20. So in other words, God had not created some brute without intelligence that had to grope and fight for dominance in the world. Mankind was created with souls, right, with intellect, with identity. And it's here that for the first time what God says is called a command rather than a blessing here in verse 18. The other mandates were called blessings, 122, 128. This one is a command. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. These are the two trees mentioned back in verse 9. So we're given one command, just one. One thing we cannot do. One thing. There was never a command, if you notice, to refrain from eating of the tree of life, only from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The implication could be that when they're mentioned together is that if by not eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you are then able to partake of the tree of life. But man was free to eat of any of the other trees, any of them. If, however, he ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the day in which he eats of it, ate of it, he will surely die. God declares that the punishment for eating would be immediate. This is important later on in the next chapter because God will not kill them on the day that they eat of it. So there's something in this God that triumphs over his justice without violating his own character, right? We're, we're, we're going to see that. But for now, the first and only command called a command comes with a curse for breaking it, and the curse is death. This God, Adam, you cannot trifle with this God, right? Look at 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. There is another break here from the structure we've seen. Did you see it? For the first time, God makes something and says it's not good. What is not good? It's the fact that man is alone. Right? And again, it's God who addresses the issue by saying that he will make a helper fit for him or better translated, a helper corresponding to him, a helper of his kind. 
Prior to all this in verse 19, God had already brought every animal of the earth and bird of the heavens to Adam and let him name them. Whatever Adam named them, that was their name. Naming was an extension of having dominion as God's image bearer. But in all the naming, Adam realized something. As each animal came past, however it happened, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the animals would be fine doing what God mandated them to do. Adam, however, didn't have what he needed. Right? Look at the second part of verse 20. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep. To, it's the, 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 the spiritual implications here are ridiculous. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. So isn't that a beautiful image in paradise, right? Then the man said, then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. There was no corresponding companion among the animals over which Adam was to have dominion that could help him exercise that dominion. That was not good. Think about that. Not good based on what standard? Why is it not good that Adam is alone? What's, what's the standard here that makes it not good? The text reveals that this dominion mankind was intended to have over creation could not be exercised or achieved if the man was by himself, right? That's what's missing here. That's what's not good. He can't do what he's been called to do alone. So God acted to solve this problem for Adam by causing him to fall into a deep sleep, literally. And while Adam slept, God took one of his ribs. He must have literally opened him up because he had to close up its place with flesh God used Adam's flesh to make her so that the woman would correspond to be a helper fit for him, for his kind. He did not use dust to form the woman. He used dust to form Adam. God made Eve from Adam's rib and then he brought her to him. Just as he had brought Adam the animals, God presented Eve to the first Adam. But this time, what God brings is profoundly special and different. And to be honest, it's a, it's a hilarious image. Okay, You've been seeing oxen and cattle and alligators and platypuses. I mean, you, you know, this, this is what you've been seeing for who knows how long. And then... God brings Eve and Adam says, yes, I will take that. That is a helper fit for me. Thank you. You are incredible. Yes, that, whatever that is, I want that right here, right? It's a great, it's a finally, <laughs> it's just, it's hilarious. It's so good. And that, 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 but that image, that picture is echoed somehow to this day, even in, in a marriage where neither couple Neither person knows Christ. This is seen every time the dad walks the bride down the aisle. It's, 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 the pattern is being repeated. 
here is this, right? The, the dad could say, I, I made this, I give it to you, right? You, you see that. It, I, I, ladies, you know when I say it, I don't, I don't mean anything demeaning or disrespectful to you. It's just, just for the image. Oh, no, I mean, that, I mean is, there, is, there a, is there a moment in the life of a man that is more memorable than the sight of his bride coming down the aisle? I, I, I will never forget that. Christy and Jerry bringing Christy down the aisle. I will never forget that. In verse 23, then Adam said, then this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This is my kind, he's saying. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. No longer is this not good. The problem has been solved by God. It's very good. We find in 24, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Therefore, so let let me back up. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, this this is commentary in the middle of the creation account. A man shall leave his father and his mother, or interpretation, I should say, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. In other words, because woman is bone of man's bones and flesh of man's flesh, because of that, men should leave their fathers and mothers and join themselves to a woman for a wife. Because in so doing, the garden is repeated. The means through which man could accomplish exercising dominion over the earth. Marriage is perpetuated. We don't have time to get into it tonight. I just want to make sure this is said. This does not mean that being single is in any way sinful or deficient. That is not what this text means. Our Lord Jesus, the greatest human being that ever lived, did not take a wife. So taking a wife isn't necessary to to be approved of by God. The point here is for marriage. The purpose of exercising dominion over God's creation. That's what marriage is for. This isn't hypothetical. This isn't symbolic. This is literal. These were two real individuals who became one flesh. In Matthew 19, Jesus interprets this text as historical fact. Jesus grounds his whole view of marriage in Genesis 2, which is why he quotes it. So, and as one flesh, they were both naked and unashamed. There was nothing their nakedness revealed that would make the other look down on them. Right? In their garden, in the garden before we fell, they were one flesh and everything was perfect. Right? Everything was perfect. That is how both perspectives of the creation account end. In the first, with man and woman created in the image of God. In the second, now they are one flesh, naked and unashamed, placed in a garden by God to begin exercising dominion over the rest of God's creation. There are four things, okay? There are four things happening immediately in front of us in this text. Four things are created here. All right, it's very interesting. Man was created as a son to be the residing ruler, the regent over God's creation. The Garden of Eden was created to be the place in which mankind would begin to do this. 
Woman was created as the answer to the problem of the man being alone, meaning that dominion was not a task that could be completed alone. And fourthly, marriage is created so that man could successfully exercise dominion over creation so that the purpose of God creating us in his image and likeness could be fulfilled. That's the climax of the text before everything goes wrong in the next chapter. Again, as one flesh, the man and woman, naked and unashamed, have been placed in a garden by God to begin exercising dominion over the rest of God's creation. By his own design, God's purpose for the creation of all things cannot be fulfilled without marriage. Cannot be fulfilled unless the two become one. Which, all right, has to beg a question tonight. Does it look like marriage is the solution to all the world's problems? No. Often, it looks like marriage might be the source of much of the world's problems, really. Right? I mean, we don't produce sinless angels that can carry on the task God gave to us, for one thing. God's beautiful one flesh design for marriage and his intention for it here when it's so pure and so perfect are marred or destroyed by us every single day. We hurt each other in marriages. We hurt each other. We are mean and ugly to each other. Our bodies break down, right? Just physically, our bodies break down. We don't look the way we used to look when we first met and fell in love. We don't do well raising our children sometimes. We fight with each other. We might even grow to hate each other. There's even divorce, right? Divorce is more common now than a marriage staying together, right? Most marriages end, and if, let's say, divorce didn't end them, death will, right? So how can marriage be the way, how can it be the answer for all the world's problems? How, How can this union between a man and a woman be the way God um, fulfills his design for creating the world? Well, because this marriage isn't the real marriage. No human marriage is. This is just a picture. This is just a picture. Right? That's all it is. A wrinkled up, corners bent picture. This marriage is crucial, absolutely. But this marriage isn't ultimate. This marriage is an ultimate. So maybe your marriage isn't perfect. Maybe your marriage fell apart. The universe isn't riding on the success of our marriages. So breathe. Breathe in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ if your marriage isn't perfect or if it fell apart. Breathe it in. God didn't put all his eggs in the basket of this picture. You and I, just like Adam and Eve, were dust. I mean, I know Eve came from Adam's rib, but Adam's rib came from the dust. But dust and marriage tell the story of our salvation in Genesis 2. So, let me read Ephesians 5 to you at least thousands of years later. All right? Ephesians 5, 25 to 32. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. There's a verse in the Bible made to send you running 
to the Lord for grace. It's Ephesians 5.25. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Listen now. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor. What just happened in Genesis? Somebody was presented to somebody else. Right? So that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Naked and unashamed. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, quoting Genesis 2.24, therefore, because we are members of the body of Christ, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. What's specifically profound in marriage is how two people become one flesh. How a woman and a man, both human but completely different, become one in the bonds of marriage. Paul says that's a profound mystery and it refers to Christ and the church. Genesis 2.24 refers to Christ and the church. How and why does that matter? Marriage is just a picture of salvation. And salvation is the means by which God will accomplish his purpose for all creation. In fact, salvation is the vehicle through which, through which man will finally achieve dominion over God's creation. Finally and fully in a new heavens and a new earth, Paul says this marriage in its one flesh reality, human marriage, points to the marriage between Christ and his church. That's why it's there. But wait, right? Now, you want to talk about how do two people become one flesh? That's one mystery. How profound is the mystery that the dust of the earth could become one flesh with the Son of God? Do you see? How can that happen? How can the dust of the earth become one flesh with God the Son? Because God the Father will officiate the wedding. God will do the work of new creation. You and I were made from the dust, from clay, for a reason in 2 Corinthians 4, 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Surpassing power to do what? Create light out of darkness. Create something from nothing. Give life to the dust. Remember, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Human beings possess, through salvation, the universe-creating word of God out of nothing in jars of clay. Through salvation. In dust we possess this. Man was created from the dust ultimately to show God's power 
to breathe life into nothing and make it live. God has the power to make dust into something that bears his image and holds his divine, universe-creating, life-giving word. That's how old creation becomes new creation, the life-giving breath of God, his word, who is his son, being breathed into us through the gospel to make us new, to give us life. Remember that the woman, the bride, in Genesis 2.24, did not come from the dust. She came from Adam's bosom. And so, beloved, the bride of Christ, the church, did not come from the dust either. Right? We, did, we didn't save ourselves. We came spiritually from the bosom of the second Adam. The church isn't made from the earth. So we will not return in death to the earth. We come from the side of Jesus Christ. God pulled us out of his side and created us new in him. Ephesians 2, 6, beloved. We were in the bosom of the second Adam when he laid down to sleep in the grave. What does that text say? And God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The church was in the side of Jesus when God put the second Adam to sleep in death. Just like Eve was in Adam's side when God put him to sleep for surgery. God is showing his hand from the very beginning of time. This is what he's going to do. This is how he's going to make it all right. God knows chapter 3 is coming. They don't. He's going to act through redemption to make right everything that's about to go wrong. Through redemption. That's what marriage is there to show. The text speaks of man as male and female before Eve ever arrived on the scene. Not to establish some philosophy of gender fluidity but to show God's saving design. When only the man is present, is it that the female isn't there? No, she's there. Where is she? She's in his side, waiting to be brought forth by God himself. Beloved, where were you and I? Where was the church when God put his own son to sleep in the grave? That bride. How can Paul speak of his this perfecting, purifying work having already been completed when we struggle and stumble every day, are imperfect, impure, every day of our lives. How can Paul speak of this like it's all done? Ephesians 5. I may not look it. I don't. There's no, you, no need to use the word may. I don't look at what you're seeing tonight. But I am sanctified. I am perfected. I am cleansed by the washing of water with the word and I will be ready because of him to be presented to Christ on our wedding day. That's what salvation does. Marriage reveals the pattern through which mankind will once again stand before his creator in perfect fellowship. Marriage is how God will get us back to our rest, but not our marriages. They end one way or the other. They're not ultimate. The marriage of Christ to his church is because Christ 
in Ephesians 5.27 will cleanse his bride and wash her with the word so that he may present her to himself in splendor with no spots, no wrinkles, no defects. She will be so holy and so pure by the washing of water with the word that gave her life that she will stand naked and unashamed alongside Christ, her true husband, with nothing to hide. We've been joined to him in this union and commissioned to be fruitful and multiply by making disciples through the gospel perfectly suited to fulfill God's design for all creation. That's how that's going to be achieved. Physical marriage and having children is a picture of the spiritual union of the church to Christ through which disciples are produced and multiplied and cover the earth in all nations. And then paradise comes and the war is over and the impurities are gone. So, when God is just... It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what's on your record. It doesn't matter. For all who are in Christ, you will stand with Jesus Christ. Think about this. Everything that you would love to forget, everything you wish had never happened, every stain on you, every stain, some of us are covered in them. Every stain washed away to the extent That we will stand with Jesus, naked and unashamed, in a garden paradise, as God's image-bearing regents forever and ever and ever and ever. What God has joined together, let no man put asunder. Jesus loves us and nourishes us and cherishes us because we are one flesh with him. We are members of his body. Therefore, people get married. In Ephesians 5, 31 and 32. Because salvation is true. It's real. It takes what is not good and makes it very good. It takes dust and joins it to the divine. So that the two through salvation become one flesh. And that marriage, that union will not fail. Because the second Adam in a garden succeeded where the other failed. Through our redemption, we're joined to our Savior, Jesus Christ, to become one flesh through which we will exercise the dominion we were always meant to as his image, perfectly reflected. That's the church. That's the church. Because when God looks at us, he sees the exact imprint of his nature stamped on us. He sees Christ in us. Through Christ, God's will for creation will be achieved when he puts an end to sin and rebellion once and for all, and then Revelation 22 brings us back to paradise where everything will be perfect forever. The flaming swords will be removed. The tree of life will be in the midst of us forever. Redemption accomplished. Redemption applied. Back in a garden, married, one flesh to bear his image perfectly forever. Dust and marriage hold the keys to understanding humanity. That's where the study of anthropology should begin. We are made alive by the word of God breathed on us. We become one flesh with his son through the gospel, washed clean and perfected by him so that he might present us to himself forever by his life-giving, purifying word, speaking into the dust of our humanity. 
we become one flesh with our eternal divine husband forever. The actions of the first Adam kill us. The actions of the second give us eternal life. God created a place for Adam and Eve, but they lost it. They lost it. But like I said, who knows how many thousands of years later, the second Adam with bread and a cup in an upper room said to his bride in John 14, I go to prepare a place for you. Jesus Christ, by his word, reaches all the way back to the beginning and brings it all back together for his bride. I go to prepare a place for you. Beloved, that's our house. Jesus is my country, right? Is there anything, remember getting married, coming into your dream home? He is our dream home. There with him, he is our eternal house. A garden paradise to live in forever with our true husband. It's a love story. Always has been. What if we don't do well enough to get there? What if we don't do well enough to earn such love? Why do you think all the movies and books are written? Because we'd love to understand what true love is or find it and grasp it, but we, just, we can't do it. We can't do it. But that is how we are loved tonight. It's how you were loved all your yesterdays. It's how you'll be loved all your tomorrows and forever. Notice something as we close in verse 24. Got it one more time. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That's, that's interesting. The text doesn't say the woman is to hold fast to the man in a marriage. The man holds fast to the woman. The bride was never told to hold fast to the husband. Holding fast is the husband's job. Did you know that? Beloved, Christ holds fast to us. We don't hold very fast to him. But it doesn't matter because he holds fast to us. See why this marriage won't end? Because Christ holds fast. Christ holds fast. Christ holds fast. It's not the other way around. This is how we'll be saved. He left his father and held fast to us. Such is his love for his church. This is how we'll be saved because he'll never let go of us. I hope that comforts your soul tonight with all of my heart. Every single one of you. Ask Tony to come. I'm going to pray. I'll be down front if you need to come and pray for any reason. I'll be here. Father, I thank you so much for your son, Jesus Christ, who left you to hold fast to us forever. 
the Lord, he has returned to you. And he will bring us with him. This is our hope tonight. It's our only hope every moment. So we praise you and thank you for your son, our husband. And in his name we pray. Amen. guys for coming letting your dad come thank you let me close this in prayer and uh, we'll be dismissed father we stand before you tonight accepted 100 percent because of your son jesus christ and so lord every moment from now until you bring us back together may your holy spirit not allow us to forget this truth we praise you lord for your life-giving word we praise you for your written word and ask father that you would Reveal your son to us again and again. And we ask and pray these things and ask for your grace and peace to be upon each one of us in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.